On July 27th, I walked out of my bedroom barefoot and I stepped into a wet spot on the carpet and I immediately yelled, Ramses! That's Ramses our dog, not Ramses the Great. Um, and I thought that he had peed on my carpet, but I was running off to a meeting, so I just had to leave it until later. But when I came back that afternoon, I discovered that the wet spot was not drier, but in fact wetter than when I'd left it. As it turns out, uh, sometime about three months ago, one of the pipes in our walls sprung what's called a pinhole leak and began to spray a teeny tiny jet of water into the space between our walls. By the time that it had wet the carpet in the bedroom, it had saturated the 30% the of our downstairs flooring and, and the bottom two feet of drywall in three different rooms. The process of cleaning up this mess took until about two weeks ago, and that's a function of homeowner's insurance and having to tear out all of the, the flooring and cut holes in the drywall where it wouldn't dry out, and all that stuff had to happen even before the repairs could take place. So as a result, my family has been living in the upstairs of our house for the last three months. And um, our house is about 1,100 square feet. The, the upstairs comprises maybe a quarter of that space. It's my daughter Ember's room, uh, a bathroom, and then a landing which was converted into an office. My husband and I have been sleeping in a futon in that office, uh, which if you've ever seen my husband is comical because he's about a foot taller than a futon is long. And of course, Ember, who realizes that mommy and daddy are now sleeping next door, toddles into our room two, three in the morning every night and plops down right in between us, which to be fair would be super cute, except that in her sleep she fights ninjas. I don't know what she's doing. She, she's, some, some people sleepwalk, right? She sleep MMA fights. And she rotates during her cage fighting dreams like the hands of a clock. So eventually we form a big H between Rob and I and her. So, so there's no escape. I mean, you're either gonna get kicked or headbutted all night long. The last two weeks we actually moved out of our house because they reached that point in the repairs where they could lay the floor and paint the walls. So, so we've been feeling displaced for about three months now, jumping from friend's house to friend's house, living out of a gym bag and feeling kind of homeless. So I share this with you because the irony was not lost on me that for the last several weeks I've been trying to prepare a sermon on Sabbath rest in a season of my life when I feel nothing of the sort. At first it felt almost fraudulent even trying to talk about it until I realized this isn't a season, you know? And this was a particularly challenging circumstance, especially since adaptability is what we'll call a real growth curve for me. But, but this isn't really a season. You know, I think, I think we use that phrase, I just have to get through this season. I think we have to use that phrase or else we'll lose all hope and just eat ice cream for a living. But, but we use that phrase, it's not true. I mean, when, let me ask you, when is the last time you had a season that was really slow? Not just less chaotic, but really, truly slow. I don't think that, that gear comes standard issue anymore. This is just the pace that we live at now, for better or worse, probably for worse. So I decided that if I couldn't help us dialogue about how to Sabbath in the midst of our busyness, then most of what I could say would be worthless. Certainly to me, most probably to you also, because resting isn't the real challenge, right? But resting in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of financial insecurity, in the midst of relational challenges, this is the real battle we're fighting and one that I am often losing. So I invite you into this dialogue with humility because I do not claim to be an expert in this. If you want expert, I have some excellent book recommendations for you after the sermon. 
If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus 16, beginning in verse one. It's also in your bulletins. We're gonna be jumping around a bit, so you may wanna stick with the bulletin for that purpose. Uh, I'm gonna read out of my notes because I just realized I forgot to bring my Bible up here. Starting in verse 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They have like a real selective memory about Egypt, don't they? Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see if they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need, take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told, some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it out by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept a part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was, ang was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some people still went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. When, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. I like this story for a few reasons, but first of all, because the Israelites have not yet arrived. They're on their way to the promised land, but they have not yet arrived, and they are enduring a particularly painful consequence to their sin. This is interesting. It would have only been an 11-day walk from the foot of Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea where they would enter the promised land, but when God first offered to lead them in, they didn't believe he would keep them safe and they refused to go. You can read all about that in Numbers 13. So as a consequence, they spend the next 40 years wandering the desert until that faithless generation passes away and, and, and that would leave their children to then enter the promised land. People think it's that nonsense with the golden calf, right? They think that's, how, that's why they were wandering the desert. That was around the same time, but it was a totally different situation. And the punishment for that little infraction was in fact to grind up the calf into gold dust and make them drink it in their water. Just a note for when you pr play Trivial Pursuit, Torah edition. The desert wandering was about a fundamental refusal by the people to believe in God's provision, a refusal to trust him. 
So here we are in this chapter and God commands them to Sabbath. And he commands them to do so in the midst of great challenges and discomfort, in the midst of them jumping from camp to camp and feeling homeless. When the craziness started at our house, I didn't feel like I could rest, that I could really relax until we were back in and settled. But here, we see God command his people to rest in the midst of of challenges that are far more difficult than mine. And so my conclusion is there must be a way to Sabbath in the midst of the mess. There are a couple of ways, there are a couple of things rather that we see people do here that are fairly timeless in in terms of human behavior and I think if we examine them it will help us better understand how we can observe the fourth commandment. First, they keep some of the manna until morning. Against God's explicit instructions, they keep some of it until morning. Right after Rob and I got married, my car started to make this, this terrible noise and he was away on an overseas trip. So I took it to the dealership and they had it for a couple hours. They called me back and said, listen, it's, it's your timing belt. It has dry rot. You need to get this fixed immediately or the engine could go at any second. So I called Rob and I told him and he just begged me to just take the, the car home as is and let him look at it when he got back from his trip a couple days later. So I gently reminded him that the dealership said that the engine could go, quote, at any minute. And he gently reminded me that dealerships always say that because they want to own all of your money, not just some of it. And I gently reminded him that if I drove off the lot, my engine could explode at any second because that's a thing that really happens in real life. Um, and he gently reminded me that that is in fact not true. So at, at some point, we, you know, we went back and forth on this uh, so, so much and, and, and I started to get so emotional that finally he stops me and he's like, what, what are you so afraid of? Why are you so terrified of letting me fix your car? And it was the word terrified that made me stop and think because I was, I was terrified of letting him fix my car. And, and I knew he was a competent mechanic. And I knew that he'd changed a timing belt before and I knew that this would literally save me thousands of dollars. So what was I so afraid of? The truth is, I'm afraid of having to depend on anybody. Because if I let myself rely on someone else and then they leave me or they let me down, that maybe I will have forgotten how to take care of myself and I'll be vulnerable. We hate to need people because we know what it feels like to be disappointed. In some cases, we remember what it feels like to be disappointed. Here's the thing though. In the text, it says they gathered just enough. The one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. When they measured out the manna, they had just enough for today. So if they saved some until morning, then logically, someone went to bed hungry. How often do we ration out what God has given us today so that we don't have to come back and ask for more tomorrow? We, we guard ourselves, our, our resources so carefully because they're finite and I understand that and the only way to have enough is, is to ration or to refill and we choose the former, I think, because it allows us the illusion of control that it saves us from having to to depend on the generosity of God. It saves us from ever having to feel the disappointment of asking for something but not receiving. Second thing they did, they went out to gather more on the Sabbath. We had friends over to, to play board games and have dessert a couple of weeks ago when we got back into the house as a kind of belated birthday celebration for my husband. I got a pumpkin loaf, we put a 
candle in it. It was delightful. Um, and our friends brought over their son, Lawrence, who was about a year younger than Ember. He's about two and a half. And uh, they wanted some birthday cakes. So I cut them off, you know, little half slices of this pumpkin loaf, put in little bowls, put them on the coffee table, and went back to the adult table to continue playing Settlers of Catan. Minute goes by, Ember toddles over. Mommy, can I have some more cake? Sure, babe. So I cut her off just a tiny, another, another little tiny half slice, put it in her bowl, she goes away. 30 seconds later, she comes back. Mommy, can I have some more cake? Okay, baby, but just a tiny little piece because you're gonna get a tummy ache. All right, mommy. So I cut her off this little sliver and I put it in her bowl and she walks away. And just out of curiosity, I turn around to see like how fast she's scarfing this cake into her face. And I notice that she has not in fact eaten any of the cake that I've given her. She has stacked it very neatly on the coffee table both slices, and then she adds her third slice to it, and then she kind of saunters over to Lawrence's bowl and begins to eat his cake. <laughs> now, I am sure this is because I have somehow failed her as a parent, but, <laughs> the, and the daycare teachers won't tell us the truth, but I really believe that she is the bully of the daycare. She is like the mafia when it comes to toys and sweets. Whenever we drop her off, the, the other children run up to her and they sh show her their bracelets and their shoes, whatever new things they have. Rob says it's like, you know, she's holding court and they're presenting themselves for approval. I was prepared to have mother-daughter talks about body image, low self-esteem, embarrassingly dark leg hair. I have 15 years of anecdotal wisdom in those arenas, but no, I, I birthed the godfather of Creative World School Cypress Springs. She literally took cake from a baby. I can't relate to that. How many times do we go back out for more when our need is already met? How often do we refuse to enjoy what's right in front of us because we're stacking up more for later? Sabbath is about celebrating the good that already exists instead of working for the good that does not yet. When we ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, the, the ground became cursed. This is from Genesis 3, 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat your food from it all the days of your life. I think our trouble is that we've begun to believe that we can somehow outsmart the curse Right, that we can outwork it, that we can get ahead of it. Like God is gonna be somehow outwitted by our cunning, you know? Oh, I didn't think they'd save some till morning, foiled again. I don't, I, I just don't think that that's happening. If humanity hasn't found a loophole to this in, since the beginning of created history, I don't think you and me are gonna be the ones to crack the code. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think it's an accident that that laundry has to be done each week and teeth brushed each night and dogs walked and food cooked. There's a rhythm to the tending of creation that reminds us that we need to keep coming back to the wellspring of life that we walked away from in the garden. The one that gave us everything that we needed for each day's work because work isn't really the problem, right? Work wasn't a part of the curse. We're, we had work to do in paradise. We'll have work to do in heaven. Work isn't the problem. Toil is. And I'm not talking about just having enough to eat or enough wealth or enough material possessions because we, we certainly toil for more than just food. I'm talking about anything that we look to as our provision. 
We toil for more than just food. We toil for the outcomes of our circumstances and relationships. We toil for control over the people we love. We toil to avoid circumstances that we don't want to face. We toil to, to avoid feelings we don't want to feel. Worry is a form of toil. Thinking over and over a situation, trying to, trying to reason out a way to influence something that is out of your control. Maybe you're not busy with work. Maybe you are busy with worry. And it's a lot of work to manage things that are out of our control. Israel had no control over the manna showing up. Providing manna was God's job. Their job was simply to gather and use what he provided. They lost their rest to work that was not theirs to do. It's not all our work. We toil when we choose to feel today the weight of all our tomorrows. Every sink of dishes, every bill, every diaper, every Monday morning when the week feels endless and we become blind to the blessings that we look on today because all we see there is tomorrow's unfinished work. And so we sacrifice all the joy that we could experience now, all the Sabbaths that we could enjoy now, and we start to, to stack them up, bank them like PTO, st stacking up our pumpkin loaf until we, just, we have enough that we could just retire early. But, but the problem is it doesn't keep overnight. The manna turns to maggots before we can enjoy it. Sabbath is an act of trust. It risks to celebrate the goodness that God has already provided and risks to trust that his provision will be there tomorrow, that the manna will come back and that there will be just enough. Here's an interesting bit of trivia I learned in my reading. The two Chinese characters that come together to form the word busyness are the characters for heart and killing. Yeah, think about that. Sabbath is one of those things that, that once you do it wrong long enough, I think you begin to forget why it's important to even do it right, like using a turn signal in Orlando, apparently. <laughs> we, don't, we don't see the danger, right? Because, you know, we don't, we don't feel like we're hurting anybody, and we're doing good things, you know? We're, we're, we're doing good things for God, even. We forget that Sabbath is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. It's right up there in the Big Ten, guys. And I know it's really easy to feel like, well, you know, it's 2017, the age of global commerce. Sabbath is just so old-fashioned. And it is. But to be clear, it is no more old-fashioned than thou shalt not murder. It is just as much a sin to, to break Sabbath as it is to steal or kill. And that is not to say that the latter don't have more profound natural consequences. But the significance of murder does not negate the significance of breaking Sabbath. God does not grade sin on a curve. It is pass-fail. And as with any sin, it, there are some real dangers that it doesn't advertise to us on the packaging. There is a natural consequence to never resting. The, the Lord's instructions for Sabbath are fascinating. Once every seven days we rest, our animals rest, our servants rest. Once every seven years, we let our land rest. We don't sow our fields. Do you know what happens to a field that you, don't, that you leave untouched for a year? It becomes more fertile. 
It's, it's, the, it's the basic idea behind crop rotation. This is agricultural science. If, if you don't sow the field, there, there, there are a finite amount of, of nutrients in the ground, right? And crops pull them out. And so you let the land rest for a year in order for the, for the soil to replenish itself. You get a better yield if you let the land rest. It is the design built into the very protons and neutrons of creation. It's the rhythm that all things were meant to live by. But at some point, we realize that we don't have to rotate crops if we just put the nutrients back in the soil ourselves. Then we never have to give up a valuable crop year by rotating. We found essentially a loophole, a way to get around having to let the land rest. But the longer that this practice went on, we began to notice a side effect. A couple of weeks ago, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced that there is a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, and it is getting bigger and bigger every year. The one this year is about 9,000 square miles. It's roughly the size of New Jersey. And this dead zone is caused by runoff from farms. Farms that are using fertilizers to put nutrients back into the ground. And the rain washes it away and it goes into the ocean where, where it feeds an algae bloom which uses up all the oxygen in a patch of sea and suffocates all the flora and fauna that can't get out of the way. There is a natural consequence to never resting. We become exhausted like depleted soil, and there is no workaround that doesn't have a hidden cost. We cannot squeeze more goodness out of nothing. We are taking it from somewhere else. And most of us know this because we've dabbled with our own workarounds. We, we've tried to anesthetize ourselves against burnout by seeking pleasure and comfort, but, but this is not rest. It's simply masking our exhaustion with entertainment numbing out our fatigue with fun. And the cumulative effect of our exhaustion requires more and more anesthesia over time. In God's economy, there is such a thing as too much. And listen, if you don't know Jesus, don't check out on me because, because this will benefit you too. God doesn't need us to follow his instructions. They are for our good, not his. I mean, there's stuff in the Bible, there's instructions about tending to uh, infectious diseases, about uh, how to mend a house that's been infected with mold. It's, 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 he, he, he gives us these commands for our good, not for his. So if you live to be 70 and you're designed to Sabbath every week, that amounts to 10 years of rest. That is a part of your design. Your heart, body, and mind were designed to rest every week, accumulating to a decade of your lifetime. So if you choose not to practice Sabbath, it is like pulling a spiritual, mental, and physical all-nighter. You might get the job done, but you probably can't call it good. There is a natural consequence to never resting, like a knife that becomes dull with overuse. But there is a supernatural consequence as well. It's not just good for our body, it's good for our soul. It invites us into a posture of humility. It, 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 it forces us to reconcile with the fact that, that the world will go on without us for a day. We have this twisted idea that, that working and never resting somehow makes us better people than those lazy bones who take vacations and go home at five o'clock. I mean, who has time for that? Dan Allender writes, it's rare for someone to publicly tout his or her violation of the Ten Commandments with one exception. 
our debasement with busyness. We love to tell others how much we work, how much we still have to get done, how overwhelmed we are with the exhaustion of our labor. We admire busyness, speed, and productivity, yet we envy those whose leisure time is abundant. I would take that a step further and say, we resent those whose leisure time is abundant. We judge those whose leisure time is abundant. We see a, a picture on Facebook of a coworker who's lounging by the pool and we think, how many vacations does this guy take every year? <laughs> We've been violating Sabbath for so long that when someone honors it, we think it's their character that's flawed. And that's so dangerous. Because it allows us to take our sin and let it masquerade as something noble and we begin to feel a little smug about how hard we work, but let's not pretend that there is not an intrinsic reward that we receive when we refuse to rest. Like all addicts, we get a high from the accolades that we receive, the attaboys, the, the access to our superiors, the influence, the perks and pride, the self-satisfied notion that I am simply the hardest working person in the room, and we do this so much that we actually begin to believe that we are in fact indispensable. And, and what's worse, if we work in any form of Christian ministry or even as a volunteer, we, be, we begin to believe that we are indispensable to God. And isn't he lucky to have such a hard worker like me on his team? But when that child or that friend or that spouse looks at us with disappointment because there's just no time, for the birthday party, or the coffee, or the embrace, we believe that the ends will justify the means. We believe that what I intend to do right now is more important to God than honoring his fourth commandment, and there is no one in the world who could possibly be qualified enough to do it besides me. Though maybe we wouldn't say that in quite those words. There is an intrinsic reward because in our specific moment in history, we're looking for more than Israel was. We are looking for more in our work than just provision. We're looking for more than just comfort. We are looking for significance. We're looking for someone or something to tell us that, that our existence actually matters. Matthew Sleeth writes, there is something comforting about being overworked. If work is the meaning of our lives, then more work equals more meaning. So this is not a season. Let's not fool ourselves. This is the pace that we live at. It's the pace we've chosen to live at. We are busyness addicts, right down to the dopamine hit we get when the alert noise goes off on our smartphones, and we're choosing it. We're choosing it in part because we believe some part of us believes that, that what we produce determines what we are worth, but nothing could be further from the truth. The proof that you matter has already been produced. The proof came to us as a child. Perfection incarnate, Jesus Christ. The proof was produced not by the work of our hands, but by the work of his. God doesn't need efficiency from you above all else. Whatever it is, I promise you, he can get it done faster himself. He's God. He doesn't want efficiency above all else. He wants relationship. It's why he came. It's why he let us kill him. Sabbath is an act of humility. 
It reckons with the fact that we are not as important as we think. That it is not our work that sustains us. The supernatural consequence of Sabbath is that we get seven days prosperity for six days of work. That human prosperity exceeds human productivity. That when we stop grasping for more, we find that we already have enough. In fact, that our cups overflow. So this brings us to the very practical question, how do we begin? When Rob and I first started discussing this concept, the idea of Sabbath, uh, its importance, all the changes that we would have to make in order to observe it properly, the things we would have to start saying no to today in order to have margin a month from now, he remarked to me, Sabbath is a lot of work. And in a manner of speaking, it is because part of the labor of our six days is making room for the seventh Sabbath is about making room, but not just as a day off. A day off is vacation, literally vacating your responsibility. Sabbath, by contrast, is about being filled. Sabbath is about being filled so that we can continue the work that God planned in advance for us to do. God Sabbathed. God rested from his labor, but it would be sacrilege to say it was because he was tired. He didn't need a day off. God rested simply to stop and admire and celebrate all the work he'd already done to call it good. It's more than a day off because let's be honest, there are probably some folks in here who literally cannot take a day off in their present circumstances. In God's economy, there is such a thing as too much, but I know very well that there is also such a thing as not enough. And if you have to work seven days to feed your kids, God doesn't want you to starve. Jesus permitted his followers to pick grain on the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. That's work. It's, it's not legalistic. Jesus says in Mark, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God doesn't need us to Sabbath. We need to Sabbath. Because we need to remember that the world will go on without us. We need to remember that, that he holds all things together, not us. We need to stop toiling for control. We need the opportunity to see that he can, in fact, provide, that he has, in fact, provided. Even if not always in the ways that we'd prefer. So if you have to work seven days a week to keep the lights on, that's okay. Find another way to admire what God has already done, what, what good there is that you can celebrate that you don't have to toil for and meet God there. God rested from his work and he called it good. The Hebrew word for good here is tov, better translated fat, full of delights. This is how we, we rest in the midst of the mess. We follow God's example. We take a day to celebrate the goodness that already exists instead of toiling for the goodness that does not yet. We take a day to celebrate the goodness that already exists instead of toiling for the goodness that does not yet. Over the course of the last three months of sleeping on a futon with my enormous husband, we would often find things to fight about. Actually, I would find things to fight about because I married the most patient man in history. And I come from a family, that's true, uh, and I come from a family of yellers, so I'm very practiced at it. I'm a skilled yeller. Um, Rob, on the other hand, it comes from a family of non-yellers, so he's no good at it, even when he tries. Even, uh, you know, when Ember comes downstairs for the fourth or fifth time at 11 p.m. and tells us that she just cannot sleep without her magical princess wand, Rob will try to yell, but this is what he'll say. Ember, lay down right now and put your feetsies under the covers. 
She remains unconvinced of the danger, I assure you. I, on the other hand, felt myself more and more short-tempered as our displacement went on. There was one night I was trying to get some reading done in an Exodus commentary. Rob was on a trip, and Ember had been up and down a few times, uh, you know, coming to my door with various requests. Mommy, I have to go potty. Okay, baby, let's go. Now go back to bed. Mommy, I need my bear. Okay, baby, here it is. Now go back to bed. Mommy, the bunnies are trying to get me again. Okay. I got nothing for that. Go back to bed. So the fourth time when she comes and I hear, Mommy, I just lose my patience. And, and, and I yell, what, Ember? Mommy's working. What do you need right now? And I look up and she's looking at me all misty-eyed. And she says, I just wanted to give you a hug and a kiss. I know, right? Come on. I'm the worst. And what am I losing my patience over? That there's not enough time to work on my sermon on Sabbath. When a little piece of Sabbath is staring me in the face and asking for a hug and a kiss. How much do I miss by being in such a hurry all the time? How much do you miss by being in such a hurry? By looking at screens instead of skylines, calendars instead of eyes, we miss the very, very temporary adoration of our children. We miss the Perseid meteor shower that graces our skies every August. We miss opportunities to, to have bad coffee with good friends where we solve all the world's political problems. We miss the embrace of a spouse that lingers just long enough to indicate that passion is afoot. Sabbath is about noticing God's work and calling it good. It's about sleeping on a futon in the office, delighting in a little girl who still wants to cuddle no matter how painful and headbutty those cuddles may actually be. I don't know what Sabbath is gonna look like for you. It's, it's, it's not a formula. If you need a litmus test, try this exercise that John Parker suggested. Pick a day on your calendar and say no to anything that feels like work or obligation. Even if it's work that you really, really wanna get done. So don't lie to yourself. Don't be like, you know what really fills me up? Yard work. I feel God's pleasure when I mow. Okay, chariots of fire, you sit on a throne of lies. Don't do that. Just, just go with me on the exercise, okay? It, it's not a formula, but whatever it is, it will make room to celebrate the good that already exists instead of toiling for the good that does not yet. It will make room to notice, to admire, and to celebrate to celebrate all the small things, to celebrate the big things, to celebrate the fact that God's kingdom has already broken into this world through the, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though the work is not yet complete. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've given meaningful work for us to do. And Lord, you know the condition of every person in this room. You know what burdens they are carrying right now. You know the load that they're carrying, the work that they feel is all theirs to do that is crushing them underneath the weight. Lord, I pray that you would move into each of our hearts today and that you would begin to, to help us discern where we need to draw the boundary. What is our work to do and what is not? Lord, help us to release to you the worries that we toil over day and night, the fears Lord, we lay them at your feet and we ask that you begin to heal our hearts of this 
deep-rooted cultural belief that, that, that what we produce is what we are worth. Lord, begin to undo that spell in our minds and our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the will to begin to practice your Sabbath so that we can begin to see that, that your design is in fact best for us, that, that, that everything that needs to get done will get done, that the world can go on without us for a day. I pray that you would begin to remind us of our identity in you as your children and image bearers, that we are of infinite worth and that we will stop chasing after the affirmation that this fleeting world will give us. And we begin finding that in you instead. Lord, we pray that you would begin to change the, the parts of our hearts that believe that, that we can do, that we know what's best and that we can do what's best, even if it's against the design that you've created us. So Lord, we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope, amen.